Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford. Hi, and I'm Dr. Matt Annan. Welcome to Local Zero. This is episode six. How do those leading the charge on the net zero transition bring everybody else along in society for the ride? We're all about citizen engagement and local governance and how they can work together to shape what the net zero transition looks like in different nations and regions of the UK. And coming up in today's show, we've got a real world expert in this, Professor Becky Willis from Lancaster University joins us, and her work focuses on the partnership between citizens and the state in delivering net zero, and the tensions that might exist between national and local government. A policy will only work, take something like decarbonising home heating, it'll only work if people want these things in their houses, if people are willing to pay for them one way or another, whether that be through tax or through buying a heat pump or whatever that might be. The best way that you can make those policies work for people is to ask them what would work for them, to share the challenge, if you like. Right, so as we're recording, we're currently recording this on US Inauguration Day. So how do we all feel about the new administration? A lot more positive than the uh, than the existing administration, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> to put it lightly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited about about seeing the steps that are going to be taken to really take us forwards, not only toward COP26 and like re-engaging the US in climate action, which could have a massive global impact, but also, you know, I have friends, I have friends in the US that are really worried about a lot of things that are happening on the ground around COVID, for example. So I'm quite excited to see how this shift in power can start to bring about a bit more positivity. Yeah, absolutely. And do we think we might see Uncle Joe at COP26 in Glasgow? Fraser, what do you reckon? I hope so. I've got pubs picked out that I want to take them to. I, <laughs> I know exactly the trail that will take them on. I hope so. I think it's it's nice. I would say it's nice to have a leader of the free world who believes in climate change just fundamentally as a thing. I think that's something that we can all 
take a little a little bit of comfort in going forward. Still a massive challenge. There's still a lot to undo before he starts doing a lot of the good stuff that needs to be done. Yeah. But I would say, yeah, a nice collective sigh of relief for now, but important to keep the feet to the fire. I was having this exact chat last night with my wife. We were saying, well, if, if COP26 had happened last November, this would have been before the Biden administration, and that would have been a very, very different discussion. So, yeah, maybe we can get the momentum we need under this new administration to do something really, uh, really worthwhile globally. Yes, it'll be very, very exciting. I guess we should pick up on what's going on uh, closer to home. And and certainly across my Twitter feed has been news about the, the new coal mine in Cumbria, where the UK government is refusing to step in and prevent planning for this new coal mine near Whitehaven. I guess it's worth saying that this is a decision taken by local government and in some eyes from the councillors there, for local people, it's, it's jobs and what have you there, that it's producing coke for uh, steel industry. And that's actually, you know, something that's relatively difficult to strip out. But this landing in a cop year, wow. I mean, you couldn't, couldn't be further against, you know, the principles uh, and the spirit of, of what we're trying to do. Yeah, and this picks back up as well on um, some of the stuff we were talking in the last episode with uh, Chris Stark about, particularly around the role of local government, local authorities in delivering net zero. And so I wonder if we're going to see tensions here between national priorities and regional or local priorities where they may not always be completely in alignment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we really do have the right person on board today to talk a bit more about that. But, you know, for me, not the biggest news that we've had since the last episode. Uh, we actually got a, a tweet direct from Paul Scholes. The Paul Scholes. It, well, no, a Paul Scholes. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know who the Paul Scholes is, a legendary Man United attacking midfielder, um, goals galore, uh, never scored a bad one. Uh, no, this is from a Paul Scholes. And he was tweeting exactly about uh, this coal mine situation and asking us, you know, can we can we bring this into the pod? So, Paul, uh, this one's for you. And hopefully uh, the discussion with Becky will, will tie up a few loose ends on that. Absolutely. So we're going to bring Professor Becky Willis in really soon. But before we do, just a quick recap on our last episode. But we had a huge star with us, Chris Stark, the Chief Executive of the Climate Change Committee. He talked to us about what they've been doing in the run-up uh, to the end of the year and the release of their sixth carbon budget and what 2021 and the run-up to COP is going to look like for the CCC and for the UK. So I think it probably is the most important COP for a while at least. It remains to be seen whether it's the most important COP ever, but it could be. That goal of net zero is, I think, going to be the binding thing that sits through all of the things that the COP is trying to pull off. Now, I think that will be the first achievement for this COP is that net zero is a, a binding goal I was actually really pleasantly surprised to hear how positive Chris was about where we need to go, what we've been doing so far, and, and just the challenges that lie ahead. And I wouldn't say he said it was going to be easy, but it certainly seemed that he's fairly relaxed about the finances and the costs involved in the transition, and that some of the key challenges really are around how those costs might be distributed, rather than actually getting over the hurdle of the costs in and of themselves. There is no real barrier to reaching net zero in technical terms. We know all the things that we need to do. We've got enough options in front of us that we can be very confident, I think, that we'll get to net zero. We're very confident, too, that the cost won't be very high if there is any cost at all to the, to the whole economy. 
Chris's response really was very optimistic. What I really took from it was it's highly achievable. I think maybe one of the big things he did touch upon, which we need to be aware of and which could be a real challenge going forward, is if climate change gets brought into that culture wars that we've seen, you know, divide America, seen divide the UK over Brexit. And if that happens and climate change becomes politicised, uh, highly politicised, then, then we may see new challenges uh, you know, raise their heads. And I worry about Nigel Farage and his love suddenly of criticising cycle lanes. Political discourse can turn quite quickly against these, to my mind, very sensible steps which are generally well supported because they're not captured by that political fight. I probably would place a bit more concern over this going forward than Chris did, but saying that, you know, now the change is really going to have to come from you the household, the individual. I think you know, we'll talk a bit more about this with, with, with Rebecca Willis in this episode, how we can participate with citizens, how we can bring them along. But that's going to be a real challenge going forward, I think. And of course, there's lots of different ways to engage citizens, aren't there? So part of it's about the actions that we take in our homes, in our everyday lives. But Chris also talked to us about investment decisions. So, you know, looking at our own pension funds, for example, and the ways in which we can have influence over actions that are ultimately taken by others. And I think that's a really exciting thing that we need to think about. So it's not just our behaviours in our everyday lives, but also how we hold influence over those perhaps more powerful actors with bigger capacity to drive that change. If you've got a pension, it's quite interesting how often a pension fund is is motivated to change its own investment strategy by by those um, pension holders. So these exciting and novel forms of citizen engagement will be absolutely critical in delivering Net Zero UK. Hearing direct from citizens about what they would like to see from a net zero transition and why it's essential if we're to generate widespread buy-in across society is really the next step. But what do the people want and how do we uncover their wants and needs? And how can initiatives like climate assemblies help provide these insights? And of course, it's not just about uncovering the insights, but to looking at how government, whether local, regional or national, is able to deliver the will of the people and who is responsible for doing just that. And really, that's the focus of today's episode. So looking at the role of people and the role of government. And we've got a guest who's a total world expert on these matters, Professor Rebecca Willis. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on. I'm a professor in practice at Lancaster University. I look at how to get the right climate governance and specifically the relationship between the citizen and the state in climate change. So that's why I wanted to be involved in the Climate Assembly, because that is literally a meeting of citizens and state to work out the way forward for climate. So tell us a little bit more about your about what the Climate Assembly is, because lots of our listeners might not actually know about the Climate Assemblies. So can you tell us a little bit more about what they are, what they're hoping to achieve, and some of the exciting things that you've seen coming from them? Yeah, so the Climate Assembly was part of a wider approach that you might call deliberative democracy, where you actually look at how to improve the democratic conditions, the ways in which people get to um, talk to politicians and 
talk to the government about the kinds of outcomes they want to see and the kinds of lives they want to live. So what you do with a climate assembly is select a representative sample of people. So in this case, we uh, chose 108 people who were representative of the UK as a whole in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, um, educational background, whereabouts in the UK they lived and so on. So, I mean, that in itself is amazing because when I walked into the room in Birmingham, this was pre-COVID, when I walked into this huge hotel room, I saw before me my country in miniature. So there are 108 people sort of representing the UK perfectly. And the idea is that you take them through a three-stage process, starting with a learning phase where they... Um, hear from experts and witnesses, find out what the climate issue is, how we can deal with it. And then they deliberate with those experts and with each other. And then the final phase is recommendations where they actually give their own views about what they think should happen based on a combination of that um, knowledge that they've developed, but also really importantly on their own lived experience, on their own knowledge and understanding and um, an expertise that they would bring with them as citizens. That's absolutely fascinating. So why have haven't we done this before? Is it that we haven't needed to do it before, that the, the challenge going forward in this transition is going to be, be different and need different methods? Or maybe there just wasn't the, the will previously? Yeah, it has. These sorts of democratic innovations have been running for, uh, you know, at least 30 years. Actually, it's the Greeks who did it first. <laughs> but in its modern phase, um, in its modern phase, at least 30 years, things like participatory budgeting in Brazil, where actually how public funds are spent is given to a group of citizens to decide. So these these ideas have been there for the taking. My suspicion is that they haven't been applied to climate before because climate has been basically a chat between experts, between scientists, between people with the technical know-how and then government and, and, and politicians. And it's it's sort of been a bit sewn up, really. And that hasn't mattered so much up to now because a lot of decarbonisation to date has essentially been done without people noticing. So decarbonising industry, decarbonising the power sector in terms of generation, a lot of that can be done without people noticing. But the phase we're in now, transport, you know, changes to transport, um, changes to food and diet, changes to the way we use land and so on, those are all things that, that people will notice and have views on and actually have expertise about. And so that's why I think at this point now, it's really vital that we switch to a much more inclusive way of doing climate politics and policy. And why do you think that that's going to help deliver net zero? So I understand that people might start to feel these effects a bit more. To what extent did you have you found that engaging people might take you away from the scientific evidence and looking at other solutions or are there other reasons for engagement? Like spell it out for us a little bit more. What are the benefits um, to delivering net zero faster and at the scale that we need to do it through these kind of deliberative and democratic processes? Yeah, so it's absolutely not about replacing the science or, or the expertise, the expertise of academics or of people in business who are developing the solutions who are working on innovation is not about replacing that but it's about supplementing that with with people's lived experience because you know a policy will only work take something like decarbonizing home heating 
it'll only work if people want these things in their houses, if people are willing to pay for them one way or another, whether that be through tax or through you know, buying a heat pump or whatever that might be. And the best way that you can make those policies work for people is to ask them what would work for them to share to share the challenge, if you like, to say, look, we've got to decarbonise home heating. There's no way around that. But we want to talk to you about a way of doing it that actually fits with your life and that you think would work. So the Citizens Climate Assembly flagship, you know, massive, massive moment for UK climate policy. Uh, and it must have just been absolutely phenomenal to be to be at the lead or one of the leads of that. Um, but as I understand it, the, this kind of approach is being used at a local level now. Um, from memory, you, you, you spoke previously about Lancaster and Warwick and other, other cities and towns. Um, are they doing something differently or are they essentially lifting the DNA in, of the Climate Assembly and, and just doing it at a much smaller scale? Yeah, so there were actually some local processes. I, I was part, a, a couple of years ago, I was part of various plots and schemes to get things up and running in different parts of the country. One of them led to the National Assembly and um, an, another one led to um, one of the first local citizens juries, which was the uh, the one that happened in Leeds. And so that was motivated by exactly the same reasoning, um, but applied to the city level instead. So it was, I, I, I think the question that citizens were asked there is, what should um, Leeds do about the emergency of climate change? And so it's very much a city focus. And, you know, that that links up to the national level, because obviously some of the things that the citizens of Leeds wanted can't be delivered by cities um, on their own. They would need national support. So, you know, ideally, you would have those local processes working in tandem with national level um, initiatives like the, the Climate Assembly UK. Oh, of course. And, you know, we've got the local authorities, many of which have declared a climate emergency and many of which have got... Uh, very ambitious net zero targets. So do you see these these two approaches going hand in hand? Is it almost like you can't deliver net zero unless you do these, these local climate assemblies? Well, I think what's happened is that we had this sort of sweep of climate emergency declarations at national level, but also I think mostly at, at, at local level. So, you know, it started in Bristol and sort of swept across the, the, the country. And I think that, that local politicians could really see the logic behind those climate emergency declarations and could see the pressure and support for them. So they did that. But then everyone thought, well, what next? You know, it just doesn't fit this, this idea of a, of a climate emergency doesn't fit with us trotting along doing our normal council business as usual. And so I think that a lot of the motivation behind citizens assemblies at local level was trying to sort of almost start again and really think through how a local area should tackle a problem like that. That That's why a lot of local areas have done emergency declaration followed by a citizen's jury. My only concern about that is that if they've agreed to a, you know, they've declared a climate emergency, they've held a citizen's jury, the danger is that they then cannot muster the required political will, enthusiasm, resources, whatever that might be, to actually follow through on that. Yeah, and, and that's a, a really good point you raised and, and one we actually touched on in our last episode uh, with Chris Stark, which is around the role that local authorities, local government will need to play in delivering net zero. So 
I mean, do you see local government playing a particularly important role? And, and what do you think needs to be done to support the role that they'll need to play? So from the point of view of citizen engagement, the the local scale is really crucial because most people are... Um, you know, feel an affinity with are, are are attached to their local place. It's a meaningful scale for people. So I think it's you know the right place to have discussions about climate change. The thing is that that doesn't match up anywhere uh, very well in the UK, at least. That doesn't match up very well with our policymaking, which is still incredibly centralised. And I'm particularly worried about smaller cities and towns and suburban and rural areas so I think that you know cities have managed to develop a sort of head of state they've managed to sort of scrabble together from one place or another a set of workable powers and resources around climate but other areas other local areas haven't managed that and we've got a really centralized system and definitely when you when you do some international comparisons you know most climate policy in the UK is is done at national level and then you know at very best cascaded down to local level so that that tendency towards centralization doesn't match at all I don't think with a level that's meaningful for citizens. So Becky, you've done a lot of work in the past uh, engaging with politicians and understanding uh, how the dialogue around climate change has evolved and how they engage with that dialogue. Do you see much appetite from central government to rocket boost local government, as it were, to to give them the the resources, to give them the capabilities to, to take that lead or not? Well, I find this really strange, actually, because we've got you know, on the face of it, really strong commitment from national government now to the net zero target to, and they're sort of in the middle of unpacking their strategy for how they're going to achieve that net zero target. So it's difficult to fault them on that, but they haven't done what to me is a really obvious thing, which is to devolve some of those powers and responsibilities to local area. And I see, I mean, you know, you two might be closer to this than me, but I don't see any appetite on the part of government to to, to devolve climate action, even when lots of local politicians want to see that. And even when, so in the context of COVID recovery, for example, it would seem absolutely sensible to devolve money and powers for um, economic development for COVID recovery and allow much more control from local areas over um, economic policy and strategy and tie that to um, tie that very firmly into the net zero target. I mean, I, I may be over cynical on this one, but often I think it's a, it's about a power grab or, a, or in this case sort of leaking power. The more power that central government maybe provides local, then that's less control, you know, they have. Um, do you think there's any truth in that or is that, is that nonsense? Uh, I mean, of, of course it's true. Politicians like power, don't they? But you could cynically, you, you could make the opposite but equally cynical case, which is that the government have a net zero target that they do not know how, how they'll meet. They could actually devolve that big headache <laughs> Um, and give carbon targets to um, to local areas and say, right, guys, it's up to you. They would have to also devolve the means to achieve those targets in the form of, you know, funding and and powers, you know, maybe even tax raising powers. So that I mean, that would be a big shift, as you say, Matt. It would be like a big seeding of power. But actually, 
it would mean that the buck didn't always stop with central government. Can you see any downsides for giving local areas more responsibility? And I'll sort of hedge this with a question that we got on on our Twitter feed from Paul Scholes about the Cumbria coal mine as an example. So can you see a situation whereby increasing um, the kind of responsibility in local areas could mean that they end up making decisions that might be in tension with those kind of wider national priorities because there are other very pressing local priorities. So do you see any sort of tensions that could come in there? Yeah, well, I was I was being really disciplined and not mentioning the Cumbrian coal mine because it's a it's a bit of it's a bit of an obsession of mine because I live in Cumbria, and and I've been following it for for years now. I mean, uh, this sounds counterintuitive, but the coal mine to me is an example of why you need more devolution actually, because you need to give local areas a really clear responsibility on climate change. You know, there's one absolutely chilling comment made by a local politician during the discussion uh, at the planning meeting for the coal mine. And he said, I don't do global issues, I do Cumbrian issues, right? And then voted in favour of the coal mine. That's the kind of local government that we've encouraged, at least in places like Cumbria, outside the big cities. The big cities see themselves as global players. Cumbria doesn't. So this politician can say, it's not my it's not my responsibility to do all this, you know, global climate stuff. I'm here to represent the local area, pure and simple. That can't be right. I mean, it's it's substantively wrong in that, you know, nine million tonnes a year of, of carbon emissions that this mine would be responsible for is clearly a global issue and not a local issue, unless we put a dome over Cumbria, which would be a possibility. So, it's, it, you know, it, it, is, it, is, it is factually wrong. But actually, it's maybe an indication of the lack of power of local authorities that, that local politicians feel that way. And if Cumbria had a very clear carbon target, including extraction emissions, there's absolutely no way that it would be able to consent it or that politicians would be in favour of it. So I'm really interested by this, you know, basically doubling down on, on devolution. It's not just about giving more power, but also attaching that power to more responsibility. Because so I'm thinking, and I think you make, made this case, Becky, in one of your your, your blogs on, on this, which again, we'll, we'll link to because it's a really good read, saying, you know, there aren't necessarily the powers, but there are, aren't also the targets and responsibilities around this. So for instance, and Chris spoke about this on the last episode, you know, a local level, a devolved level uh, of carbon emissions reduction. Now, if, if Cumbria had that, and was legally obliged to meet that, then do you think that councillor may have had a different perspective on this? And maybe, just maybe, we'd be in a different situation around the coal mine. Well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? I mean, what the coal mine shows is just how messy and ambiguous climate policy is at the moment, because you are supposed to take it into account in planning decisions. It's there in planning guidance. But how, you know, the guidance just says, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but the guidance just says, take climate change into account. It's really not stronger than that. And so there are, you know, there are no targets. There isn't even a very well set out methodology for how you would assess carbon emissions. All this has to be decided in the courts at the moment, which is now what's now probably going to happen in Cumbria. I mean, I'm going to sound like a, an old lag now, but 
just after the Climate Change Act was introduced in uh, 2009, there was a plan to um, use secondary legislation to develop carbon targets for each government department and for local areas. So that would have been a much clearer structure. So you had the national target and then that would be broken down into responsibilities for different government departments and different local areas. There wasn't in the end, the political appetite for that. And then there was an election and so on and so forth. But I mean, basically, that should have been in place and we've wasted 10 years. One thing that I'm really hearing strongly throughout this conversation is the need for better alignment and frameworks to support that alignment. So whether we're taking it from kind of the national level through to local level, but also bringing in citizens' voice as well through different processes. So knowing that this is something that needs to happen to create that shift and to ensure that action at the local level sort of marries up with what we're trying to deliver at a national level. What does the UK actually need to do? So how do we need to start to change things to unlock this potential? And are there other countries around the world that we can look to for an example of, you know, how we could be doing this a bit better? I would say there's three things that we need. The first is much clearer responsibilities assigned to different sectors of the economy to um, different geographies. Um, so a really, really clear path from the um, national carbon budget through to individual geographies and, and, and sectors. Um, the, um, the second thing and part of that is, is, the, is, is giving powers and responsibilities to local areas. And the third, and again, really linked, is to involve people in, in decision making and to actually see achieving net zero as about a, a partnership between citizen and state. And you know, that sounds sort of crazily idealistic. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about is a social contract we know citizens want to see action on climate change. We know they're worried about it. We know and they know they can't do that on their own. They need this the state, but they don't want they don't want things to be imposed on them. It's about a negotiation between citizen and state. And seeing climate strategy in that light, for me it just it just flips it into something different. It's no longer a discussion between experts about what's the optimum technological solution in situation X. It's actually about what kind of life we want to live and what values we have and how we can make responding to the climate challenge something which uh, fits with what we value and what we care about in life. Just to follow up on that, I think, and uh, going back to the your first point, I think, which was around the day you stepped into that hotel foyer and you saw Little Britain or Britain in miniature, did you see those people change, their, their perspective change on, on these issues during during the process? Because, you know, I wonder as these climate assemblies go on that maybe that's, it's, it's as you say, not just a negotiation and a partnership, but it's actually, it's a process that people's views will evolve and they'll become closer to these issues that, and take them on personally yeah well, i mean there's so to answer your question did people sort of evolve through the process well i think they they realized and understood the responsibility they were being given essentially to those 108 were representing the 70 odd million and you could 
really see in their discussion that they were doing that and that they were taking it seriously because they were saying things like, it's not what I want, it's what's best for the country or it's what I think would work for my area. And they were often bringing in the experience of, you know, friends and colleagues and people that they knew locally. So they were really trying to to do that sort of job of of, of representing the country. Um, so, you know, we were asking them to be citizens, not consumers. And that's what they were, you know, they were they were being citizens. And that to my mind, is in is in real contrast with. I mean, if you look at the language used in energy regulation, for example, it's all about consumers. And if you're if if you're told you're a consumer, then you think that it's decisions about you know how much you want to spend on something and whether you want to buy it at all. That's a really different mentality. So I think getting away from that consumer mo- focus mentality is really crucial. And one of the ways that you can do that is by using deliberative processes like climate assemblies and you don't have to be the person going through the process for that to change so there's research to show that that people who weren't part of initiatives like the climate assembly will trust the findings of it because it's people like them who've made those decisions so it's about a different orientation about the way you see the role of people if that makes sense (laughs) It makes total sense. And for people listening to the show that may not have been involved in those processes and may not have um, local climate assemblies or juries going on, you know, do you have any advice of how they could get involved? Or what can people do to start to shift that mindset and act more as a citizen and less as a consumer? Are there ways in which we could get involved other than through these few processes that are going on in specific parts of the country? Yeah, so, I mean, this takes me back to where I started, which is that climate assemblies are only one aspect of what you might call deliberative democracy. So they're a controlled space in which you try to model sort of perfect democratic decision making and perfect dialogue and discussion. That happens through, you know, using really good facilitation, for example, making sure that everyone's included and has a chance to speak and that it's not just dominated by the, you know, the clever or the gobby ones. So that's it's a controlled space. But there's no reason why you can't take the same principles and apply them to the rest of the rest of the world (laughs) effectively. So this is something for environmental organisations, for example, if they're putting forward positions, then they need to make sure that they're informed not just by their members, but that they they're actually putting forward solutions that work for people that might never even think about joining their organization but who are affected by those those policy proposals you know at a very personal level it's actually about about being much more open to talking about climate change not just kind of keeping it as this sort of hidden worry or concern but actually articulating it and talking to people that's another aspect of deliberation so there's all kinds of ways in which those sort of principles of deliberative democracy can be applied in in any situation really there are still a lot of communities who maybe aren't as engaged as the people on this call or the people who are listening just now. There are a lot of communities who aren't engaged in basic level democracy, let alone in, in discussing the climate emergency. If we're going to scale this idea up and get more people involved, do you see a way that we can reach out to those people and bring them along in the discussion as well? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to go where they are. So it's always pitched, as you pitched it just there, of how can we reach out to them or bring them along. I think it's much more the case of 
how can we work out who isn't part of these discussions and actually start from where they are so you know in very practical terms if you want to get a local dialogue going about climate change obviously you go to the friends of the earth local group or the local extinction rebellion group or whatever but you'd also go to you know the scouts or parent teacher associations at schools or you know those places where people are or places where people are already part of a community you know funnily enough politicians do this really well because they respect people's views because they have to get those votes. So if you look at political focus groups, for example, they will go out of their way to find people who don't care about politics, who, you know, don't always vote, who don't tend to read newspapers and so on, because they want to find out what makes those people tick. If we're serious about climate action, we need to be doing that as well. Thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating. And of course, it's important to flag to our listeners uh, your new book, which is Too Hot to Handle, The Democratic Challenge of Climate Change. You should be able to get this from from most outlets. Uh, I can see it's on Amazon and others. So yes, please check it out. Have a look. Um, And I also need to sort myself a copy out. Uh, uh, I've got my birthday coming up, so that'll be a present to myself. Right, so on to the next feature. Will you stick around, do you think, for our next feature, which will be future or fiction? Yeah, I'm intrigued now. Intrigued, good. Right, that's, yeah, so we, we snared Chris Stark on the last one. He rather enjoyed it. So hopefully we can have a bit of fun as well with you. So over to Fraser, our compare maestro um, and dreamer, really, because uh, th- these are mostly in your head. Sometimes they actually do exist. So over to you. I don't make all of them up. You're just tight because you get them wrong all the time. <laughs> Becky, just to give you a quick introduction, Future or Fiction is basically I'll present to you with an exciting new technology idea and you have to decide if you think it's real, i.e. the future of technology, or if you think that I've just completely picked it out of my brains. Okay? Right. Yeah, I'm on. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. So this invention is called a sunlight drive. A renewable startup has devised solar panel technology designed to replace tarmac and other traditional paving surfaces. The hope is that ultra-strong solar panels can be installed in driveways, car parks and pedestrian spaces, replacing traditional paving surfaces with ones that can harness solar energy. Do we think it's the future or do we think it's fiction? Definitely the future. Oh, strong commitment straight off the bat. I love it oh, straight away. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm going for pure fiction. <laughs> so I, I know that you have some of the solar panel tiles, which you know basically act like a tile. They're you know waterproof, don't get damaged by the wind, hopefully, um, and look basically like any other material. So I know those exist. I don't know whether solar powered tarmac does. Well, I'm just laughing now because I teach a course on renewable energy. So if I get this wrong, I'm going I'm to look like a fool. Um, I won't tell my students about this if I get it wrong, but it just makes sense. I mean, that's the way that innovation in solar is going. So you already get, you know, you've already got t- roof tiles, as you said, Matt. Um, you just need to make them a little bit more durable, less shatterable, and people can walk on them and drive on them. 
job done, I think. This is where Becky Ford chips in and says, actually, in a previous yeah, role, yeah. I <laughs> I actually hold a pattern for all of these. Yeah. <laughs> so I I feel like this is fiction. I'm thinking about the application of them, right? So if it's tarmac and I just think about the roads that they're going to be used on, you're not going to put something that expensive on roads that aren't really driven on much. You're going to want to put them on roads that are more well used. Becky, my yep. understanding is that it's not so much roads as like a driveway or a car park or something, rather than something that's going to be uh, travelled by thousands of people a day. Got it. I still think, though, that and my issue with it is still the same, which is that there is a car on my driveway which would prevent the sunlight from getting to the driveway. So I feel like this is a technology that is poorly, poorly designed. I, I'm not against the principle, right? So we've talked about solar roofs, solar in um, uh, glass last episode, I think. So I'm not against it as a principle, but as this application, I'm inclined to say fiction. Okay, so right, well, commitment, commitment. Matt, what are we going with? Um, I, I'm, I'm going to go. I think it is the future. I reckon somebody somewhere out there has thought this is this is a cracking idea. Right, let's throw a bit of money at this. Okay, I, I, yeah, I'm in. Future. Becky Willis. Well, I, I'm a little bit more hesitant after hearing the other Becky's fiction, but I'm still going for the future. And Becky Ford. Yeah, let's stick with fiction. Sticking with fiction. Oh, I love yep. it. I love it. So the answer is... The future. Uh... Sunlight driveways are the future. <laughs> Using thick-tempered safety glass, which is textured to resemble asphalt, an outfit in Los Angeles have received over $1.5 million in US Department of Transport funding to prove the concept of solar roadways running successful trials in a number of different locations. Thank goodness for Silicon Valley. There you go. <laughs> Surely, that, that must be the only thing ever which is not asphalt, which is made to resemble asphalt. <laughs> we need to make this look more like tarmac. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well done. Enjoyed that one. Okay. Well, a big thank you, Becky, uh, for your time. Welcome to come back anytime. Thank you. Thanks. See you soon. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for listening to another really exciting episode. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at energyrev underscore UK and also at hashtag local zero. As you'll have noted throughout this pod, we're trying to link into any questions that you want us to ask and answer. So please do engage with us, ask us, and we'll, we'll try and weave them in. So until next time, many thanks for listening. Uh, Fraser, Becky, thanks again, and we'll see you all soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. What was that, Fraser? What? I miss your like your extended bye bye bye. Bye 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 bye. Do you want me to do a take of it? I can do a take. Bye 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 bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.